so much for rejoining us at Out of the Bane. I am Tom Nixon, born at sea, raised on radio, along with my co-host and my co-brother, John Nixon. How are you? I was also born on born, born at sea, raised on radio. Well, so I'll get yeah. it right. I'll get it, by next year. I'll have it okay. down. Deal. All well, right. someone who Promise. was uh, born, I think, and raised, I think, near to us up here in the D is our guest today, who's. Also rejoining the podcast, and he's got an update on his awesome project that, John, if there's one question we get asked more than any other on YouTube, it's when is the Bobby Kimball doc coming out? So let's bring the man on himself. Maybe he's got an update for us, Mr. John Zaka. John, welcome back. Thank you, fellas. Nice to be back. Yes, I was born in Dearborn and grew up in Michigan and went to school outside of Ann Arbor in a little town called Dexter, but very close to U of M. So let's maybe recap for those who did not join us for the first episode when we had Jan. Let's tell us a little bit about what this project is quickly, and then we'll get to what's happened since the last time you've been on. So the documentary is called Kite on a String, and tell us a little bit about your project. It's uh, Kite on a String, the Bobby Kimball story. It's about Bobby's career. He had a 62-year career, and um, and it's about our relationship as well as well as going through what he actually was able to achieve um so a lot of the highs some of the lows but nothing you know out of the ordinary but it's more than just a normal documentary of you know these guys just going yeah bobby was a great it's very much a human story because of what he's been stricken with is called frontotemporal dementia same thing bruce willis has in fact, I think Bruce is about where Bobby is right now, and it's pretty tragic. So uh, it's modern-day Bobby and, and my relationship and interviewing his family and all of the, you know, Toto guys and musician friends and people he played with in Louisiana and going through his career and then anchoring with the record, the first record we did in uh, January 1996. It actually started in 95, but... It's. I'm telling the story from kind of that perspective of my relationship. I don't know if you guys saw the other day on social media that some a guy in Germany sent me Bobby's portion of an interview, and I'd never heard him talk about me like that. And it's just they just crammed it together and pasted it without the because the guy that was doing the interview was speaking in German and then in English, and then Bobby would speak. But it was about me, and I'd never heard him really talk about me i mean he's told me to my face he thinks i'm great i love you and especially now but so there's all of this newfound stuff of our journey and what he actually really thought of me and when i heard that the other night i was just floored can you do a quick recap of the what you did with him in the 90s so you were producing a record for him right i was working for jeff lorber i met bobby in 1989 at guitar center a friend of mine, we both worked on the, well, I started at the door and then the guitar floor. My friend Vince Bilbro was the bass player in Bobby Kimball's, the Bobby Kimball band, after, the first band after Toto. And Bobby came in there to see Vince one day, and I think he was, he was endorsed by Sure, I think, and he was coming in to pick something up. And I met him and we talked for a minute, and then uh, eventually I went over and started working at Jeff Lorber's studio, and I was living there, and I was you know, I would go down and see Vince and he would play me live stuff of Bobby Kimball band. And he was doing stuff like White Snake, And, and it was like, wow, Bobby's an R&B singer. It, it, this isn't fitting. It's not gelling. Uh, magical singer, all that power and R&B chops. 
So I started writing tunes at my downtime at Lorber's on one of the gazillion keyboards that were laid out for me. <laughs> yeah. And I would make cassettes, and I got Bobby's address on Shoop and would deliver the cassettes there. And we had pagers back then. And so about the fourth time I put a tape in his box, ding, 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 I see my pager, I call the number back, and it's Bobby Kimball. And he says, come on over tonight. So I truck down there, and we, I get there at like 8 o'clock at night, and I don't leave till 6 in the morning. And we just sat at the piano and played songs. And I played him what I was writing, and he was asking about the songs I was giving him. One of them was one that Dave Barnett and I co-wrote together. And it was kind of Toto-ish. So he was, you know, attracted to that stuff. So fast forward, I end up in Dallas producing and working with my brother-in-law on a record. Bobby comes through a couple times with his band. And then somebody uh, at a party plays him one of the songs Dave Barnett and I wrote called Christine. And he pulled me in the bathroom and he goes, we got to do a record. This is a hit. Mm. And so then I gears start going and I'm trying to figure out, okay, I'm going to have to raise the money, the personnel and everything. And I moved to San Francisco and I call all of my homies, Mitch Foreman, Joel Taylor, who've all been all over everything. Brian Bromberg, uh, Buzzy Feeton. You know, uh, Hugh, Mark Hugenberger, Alec Milstein. And uh, Bobby comes to me in December 95. He spends a couple weeks with me in Emeryville on the other side of the bay from San Francisco. And we pre-production the songs. What are we going to do? What are we doing? You know, some of them were, there was a couple like a song called This Time where I had it like a girl you know, relationship thing, because that's what you did back then, right? Everything yeah. was yep. love, 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 baby, yeah. baby. Yeah. And Bobby's like, no, no, no. And he starts this whole um, almost political and mm. uh, theory kind of thing and uh, world gone wrong and what needs to happen, you know, Mad Hatter stuff. So, you know, we we worked on this stuff and then he left, went back to Vinton, Louisiana, because he was living down there at the moment because he, he had gotten freaked out about the earthquake in Los Angeles. So I called everybody, they were already in place, and everybody came from Los Angeles to San Francisco. And in San Francisco is this great studio called Hyde Street, and around the corner is a hotel called The Phoenix. It's an artsy rock and roll hotel. And it was used basically for this studio and for musicians coming in town. You know, bean bags, lava lamps, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very 70s, <laughs> but cool and hip. So everybody stayed there, and we just, I brought in a horn section from Dallas. We just, the first day we tracked, okay, so there was 10. The first day we tracked the rhythm section, I think, on eight songs, and then two the next day. And then there were some overdubs. Then we moved upstairs and it started vocal time and that's when i was telling you you know that that was january 16th 1996 i know these dates they're oh ingrained now after yeah. doing this some things are ingrained <laughs> so uh bobby and i started doing the vocals and as i told you before we we had enlisted michael mcdonald on some backgrounds but that fell through and then in comes mickey thomas so <laughs> you know we spent about that's a change Right, it's a drastic change, you think, <laughs> yeah, right? But he, yeah. I mean, like on Two Souls, when you hear him release, it's just magical. I mean, and, and for me, as I told you the story earlier, I was going across the Bay Bridge when Michael McDonald canceled and Bobby and I were over or doing vocals and, 
you know, grinding it out. And it was late at night. I'd left at 3.30 in the morning. I was driving over the Bay Bridge. And as I told you before, both of you before, Sorry You, Sorry Me, a Starship track came on. And Mickey's yeah. just, whew, he's, he's up in that rarefied air. You know, and I pulled the car over. I got over the Bay Bridge, pulled over at Christie Avenue. There was a Denny's and there was a phone booth or a pay phone there because we didn't have, you know, it wasn't big cell phone time. I called Bobby at the Phoenix and I said, do you have Mickey Thomas's number? Absolutely. I called Mickey. Mickey, uh, uh, I left him a message. He called me back that the next morning. And then the following night he was there. Wow. Jeez. With bells on. Wow. You know, uh, I'll, I'll hand it back to you for a, sec- a second time, but I had made a note because I was thinking about this project today, knowing we were going to talk to you. And I, I wrote down a note that, you know, Bobby set a standard that hit his vocal delivery, the power, as well as the R&B nature of it was so unique. There were a lot of bands and a lot of people trying to do, you know, that high tenor thing, you know, um, Mickey Thomas was one that came up. I thought of Lou Graham. I thought like uh, Jason Sheff and even like Pete Cetera and Steve Perry sung up there, but it was different, you know. But Bobby set a bar that was really difficult to chase, even for these other great, great vocalists in that area. Right. As Jeannie Tracy, a premier background vocalist and artist in herself, one of the three that I used on the record from Narda Michael Walden's camp, you mm-hmm. know, she sang with Aretha and Whitney and everything. As she said in the in this documentary, the growl. Mm. Yeah. And Tony Lindsay, who was with Santana, same thing, the growl. Because he was capable of like excelling. There was so first of all, the power in his voice was so strong. Yeah. If you were next to him in the vocal booth, you had to run for dear life. It was like <laughs> Yeah, your you've ears got would that Phil and Gaines quote in there that says Phil and Gaines said the guy could sing through granite. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> And when he would laugh, I mean, if you weren't prepared, oh man, you were in total utter shock. <laughs> I mean, because it was just so strong. And, yeah. and and you know, someday I, maybe they'll uh, you know break down his lungs and find out he was like half Tyrannosaurus Rex or something. Yeah, I mean, the the power, <laughs> the power. But he could also be delicate. Like he was. Yeah, with, we hear that at times. You know, yeah. Steve Picaro, that great part of the interview, talking about a secret love. You know, he could surprise you. So this documentary was going to be amazingly interesting, no matter what, you know, provided you got the interviews, which you did, and you got some found footage. But bring us up to modern day, where now he's also struggling with his health. So give us an update on that, because that's what makes this so poignant. At the time that it comes out, it's just going to be so powerful in so many ways. Okay, so first of all, I, I would like everybody to understand that, you know, it, it, it's not my intention because I, he's my dear friend and I love him and his family dearly. 
I, I would like people to learn through this of things I went through, things he's gone through and where he's at now. It's not like this is a carnival show and, you know, you're putting the elephant man on display here. He was a unique artist and he's now in the stages, the deep stages, the last kind of stages of frontal temporal dementia, which is tricky. It's you have your normal dementia, which is, you know, they can't remember anything and they kind of little bit of aggression, maybe some more. But with this, you have behavioral memory, no empathy. But one of the unique things is that I had to fool him when I was just there this last time because he could become aggressive about your car. He wants you to take him to the DMV. He thinks he can get his license back. He would take everybody out and himself if he took a car out, and he wouldn't know how to get home. And But that's they think nothing's wrong, this disease. They don't think anything's wrong at all. So empathy was a big thing in there, but Jasmine, his wife, pointed out to me, and, it, and she was right, I would park my car down the street and I would come with his cookies and he would say how did you get here John and I would say I walked how yeah. long did it take you you know because he he would say where I was coming from Pasadena oh it took me three and a half hours and I would wow Bobby it's long walk and he'd go oh, oh and then you know after our hour or two or whatever of hanging out and talking and filming and you know, going through stories, he would say, he would go grab Jasmine and say, please, we got to take him home. And that's not a, a trait of this frontal temporal dementia. Usually they don't huh. care. You know, that yeah. that part's gone. Hmm. But he, would, he was blowing her up. So then she asked me to change it to tell him that somebody dropped you off. And that worked hmm. better. Yeah. So he, he's in the deep throes of frontal temporal dement, dementia, just as Bruce Willis, but Bobby's probably... A year or more more advanced, from what I can tell. I don't know Bruce Willis, and I don't know his family, but hearing all the stuff I'm hearing, and working with the uh, Association with Frontal Temporal Dementia (FTD), they're helping the family, and I've kind of talked to him. It, we're it's difficult, man, but he loves everybody, as I told you guys before, and mm -hmm. he wants you to know that. He loves his bandmates. He loves Steve Lukather. He loves David yeah. Bates. He loves Steve Bacaro and Lenny and J-Mo. And he loves, he loves Greg. He, once I make him realize at first, sometimes it's hard. And he's like, I don't know who that is. And then all of a sudden, I'll show him another picture and a memory well pop up. Boom. And he'll just, and you'll oh, see wow. him almost getting emotional. And then, you know, mm. oh, I love Greg. Oh, I love Steve. Constantly. Steve hasn't, Lukather hasn't left his mind because they were, those guys were the front of that stage, man. Well, you know, you're going to be forever changed from doing this too. I am already, man. Uh, I, you know, we shot the opening scene yesterday because all the interviews I have and all the other footage, but we needed now editing time. It's time to get this, all this together, the full length rough cut yeah. in place. And I, I wanted to wait. And I realized that my dialogue in the intro, some of it, you know, you know when I knew when I was doing it, the moment. I knew why I was doing it, but the how. <laughs> I'm not a filmmaker, you know? It's like, here we are, mm -hmm. deep you in are it. Now. I know I yeah. didn't want it to be a typical documentary. It had to be exciting, like the artist. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. he was exciting. 
He was a jokester. He was out of the ordinary. He wasn't a normal guy or a singer, so and not a normal friend. So it needed to have that energy that he had. He brought that energy. Is it um, settled that it's going to be one long documentary, or is there possibilities of it being episodic instead, depending? Well, the last... I, I met with... I'll keep names. Uh, a, a company, while well, I was out in California, this, well, there's two companies, and the one was like, wow, this should be, this should be a series. I, he was, you know, there was like a 45 minute with me and a friend of mine that set it up and this individual and this should be a series. And I said, well, I sent them an EPK kit and I said, and they were just traveling back from out of the country. And I said, did you get a chance to watch the trailer? No. I said, would you like to watch the trailer? So I pulled it up on my phone and then I watched the guy's expression just melding. And then all of a sudden eyes were watering <laughs> up and he went, wow wow, this needs to be like an HBO or a Showtime premiere thing, definitely. If not that, Apple, Amazon, Netflix. And I know we're, I never know, you know, you don't know. You're going to go with the best. You want Bobby to have the best and this film to have the best. So it'll be in capable hands, trust me. There is no around it. It's not, you know. Well, since we spoke too, um, I believe you had not yet interviewed Steve Lukather, had maybe not yet interviewed David Payne. Yeah, where were we? Was it a year ago? It was, yeah, about, about that. it was about a year ago because um, there was hopes that the turn of the year was going to bring the uh, release of this, which obviously was not going to happen. But who have you spoken with um, since last time we met? Well, be, be, because if it was over a year ago, I think it was. You're right because I, I yeah, because I was like, well, you know, I don't know how they feel, but this is how we were kind of in that. Yeah, you lane. had a uh, like a, a Tuesday coffee set up for Lukather the following week or something. Yeah, yeah well, that, that didn't, places it, it. it didn't go down like that. How it went down was I, I've become very close with their manager, Steve Karras. And, uh, you know, I respect that guy immensely. He's been such a help to me and wanting me to do right. And they all want Bobby to have the best. So what had happened was I got to L.A. and I text, I text, no, I didn't text Luke. I was talking to Steve Karras, and he goes, what do you need? And I said, I need Luke. We talked about in a group text with Alan Friedman. That's what it was. We're going to get coffee or something, and we'll see what, how it's going to go. He had some set rules that he, and I don't blame him. You know, you need to protect the image and all that is and tell a real story here. But, you know, you have to be careful. There's a lot of people's reputations on the line here and, and stuff they built over decades. So... Steve goes, hang on, calls me back 10 minutes later. And he goes, Lou, or you need to be at uh, Steve's tomorrow at, you know, I think it was like three or something. And I drove there <laughs> and it was right up the hill from where my old apartment was. His brother-in-law, Don Curry, bless his soul, just passed and was a dear friend, owned the building that I was living in where Simon Phillips lived above us. And, you know, Toto had put him there when he took over, but... So it was right up the hill in Studio City, and, and, I, and I got there, and he's like, he comes out, opens the gate, and greets me, gives me a hug, and then it was kind of like, how the hell do you know all these people? <laughs> and, I, and I just kind of went through my, you know, I told him about living at Don's, and I worked for Lorber, and, you know, I just kind of, I need to say this, too. Saying how to do this. It was really that mental challenge of like, okay, I'll just go get the family first and I'll worry about everybody else later. It just, 
there hasn't been really a big smackdown here yet. Everybody's been, it's just fallen into place. It's like somebody's pushing me in the back and I'm just like the Pac-Man mouth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You know, eating up the dots and, and waka, like, waka, waka, getting waka, all this waka, footage. Waka. But yeah. Steve was great. Uh, of course, he was a little guarded because he's been sure. used to being beat up over yeah. the Bobby and him relationship. And it's not that. They're brothers. And I, I kept saying, I said that to him as well. Man, all these photos and all this footage I go through, 99% of it is him and Bobby on the bus, at the table eating, in a casino, joking, arms around each other, whatever. It was those two because they were the they were the adulation. They were the front. They were the showmen. The other mm-hmm. guys were just mm-hmm. as integral in the whole situation, but those two were the front of the stage. Yeah. Right. So all that energy and all that emotion was shared between those two. So of course there's gonna be dynamics with those two. I have a question about um than the the soundtrack. So you were raising money, crowdsourcing for the soundtrack because the licensing of all these songs uh, is a lot of dough. Um, And I know there's a lot of behind-the-scenes details, but in terms of the crowdsourcing thing, that went pretty well, didn't it? It did. Now, I won't say names, but there was another crowdfunding that happened around these some of these guys. And... I don't know if it was handled all well. I don't know enough about it, but I know that some people were severely pissed that they didn't get... And even I'm still fulfilling. I think, Tom, I just got back here. I was gone, and the editor was trying to send these out, and he just finally brought everything over to me. So now I got all the tubes and the posters and the pictures. So I got to run back and forth to the post office now. It's you have to follow up with this stuff, and it wasn't fo- followed Put up. Put my before. name as producer or something. I, you know, just keep the swag. <laughs> I just want a production credit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. No. I'll just say filmmaker Tom Hickson. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah. So the Kickstarter was it was successful. Okay. Yes. Yeah, so I, I I've developed a relationship relationship Lucille and I, who's Bobby's manager, my publishing administrator, and dear friend forever. Uh, We've developed kind of a relationship with the Sony people, and they've been more than generous. But here is the crux. I mean, as you can see the board. Let me just grab this board because I'll just read off sure. the songs. Can we you want yeah. to do that? The whiteboard. Yeah, I saw a picture of this on uh, Facebook. Yeah, so, you know, <laughs> uh, we got A Secret Love, Right Part of Me, Tale of a Man, You Are the Flower, I'll Supply the Love, Girl Goodbye, Hold the line, Mama, White Sister, Million Miles Away, Gift with a Golden Gun, Rosanna, Africa, Make Believe, Waiting for Your Love, Mrs. Johnson, Cruel, High Price of Hate, and Going Home. Whew. Uh, you know, and, and and it's at first when I kind of threw the list together and ran it by Sony, all they can do is give me retail sure. at that moment because they don't. That's why I'm putting the getting the full length rough cut in place and putting the music in there and sending it to them. Nobody else. It'll be private, so they can kind of determine because they don't know if I'm using five or you know three minutes of Africa or ten seconds. Right. You know they don't know that of any of the songs. So yeah, and it, whether it's under dialogue, all makes a difference. Right. Right. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, they they shot me a price back. Well, that's probably roughly around 150 to 175 grand. So at that <laughs> moment, I said. I'm going to need help because I've had to pay for all this myself. Mm-hmm. I've ran credit cards up, juggling limits back and forth. And, you know, it's just because I didn't really want anybody telling me what to do. 
Yeah. You know, who know wants that? that? And and that could be dangerous because a first-time filmmaker, you know, carte blanche to make a film, it's like, it's part Exorcist and it's part, <laughs> yeah. you know, Willy Wonka. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you to everyone who supported that because that's yes, going to help make this you, project everybody. be a reality. And I'm still sending out stuff. There's somebody sent me a thing last night. So I've got the list back from Robert because I, I was almost eight weeks in Los Angeles. And I was sending pictures from there to Robert. And he was getting the tubes were separate. And then the posters came. And then this came and that. So it's like, and then, you know, the cost of sending this stuff to Europe. No, oh, yeah. When, these poster tubes are just beyond this length of where it would be five dollars to send some, and where it's changed to twenty dollars to send some. Yeah, try pressing vinyl and then having to send vinyl out. I, I did that once. That's once. No, that's not fun. Yeah. Once, once. Yeah. What I need to make clear is that unless a miracle happens and I have a uh, money starts falling out of the sky or coming out of my cupboards, mm. uh, these songs, the Toto songs, aren't going. They'll be in the movie, but right. the soundtrack is a whole nother cost. It's called soundtrack fees. Yeah. So if I want a hard copy of these Toto songs, it's a mountain of money. But I couldn't. Could you imagine all these 18, I think, songs and then all the songs we have? The song uh, Bill did with Bobby, Bobby's solo Annalise with uh, Guy Allison and Bruce Gowdy. You know, all of the piano vocals that I found of Bobby from Davlin that are magical. And Mickey's redoing one of the piano vocals for the movie oh wow yeah okay. and it's his i sent it to him while i was driving back just now from la and he sent me a message my wife was crying he goes yeah i gotta do this so it's oh, there's a lot of great music and i know i apologize if things keep changing but you know also another nugget all, all the tapes man that i've gone through i can't even tell you it, hundreds of tapes of of rough cuts and and demos and Bobby at home with his keyboard just recording and the phone ringing in the background. You can hear cartoons going on, Flintstones. <laughs> Flintstones. And he's playing a keyboard. That's awesome. You know? So the next question would be, if everyone's going to ask us, is when? And that's probably one you can't answer yet. Well, here's what I can tell you. And now, I, I know everybody falls on that trip. You, you guys asked it last time. And I was like, ah, it'll be January. But then you're like, wow, there's this, there's that, there's this, this, this came forward, that came forward, this. So right now we're getting the full length. I, I Hopefully three weeks I will have the full length rough cut in order. I do have to take a trip down to Port Arthur, Beaumont, Port Arthur, to a museum down there and take a dis display because they only had one photo of Bobby down there and they want to film it and we want it in the film. Because yeah, it's okay. another, he was indu he was inducted into the California Music Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. Right. Then we got this that I got to take care of. So I'm going to have the full length rough cut done in three weeks. It'll go to Sony, and then it'll go to the distributors that are interested. Uh, and then I'll know from there. I don't know okay. whether they're going to. You know, this is kind of great thing about this, and I thank all of you, including you guys, because by doing this is that it's kind of self-promoted itself. Mm -hmm. It's kind of snowballed down a hill and just kept growing and growing and growing. I mean, I did a musician magazine, Zoom, with Australia. A lot of love came from there. A beautiful publicist, Nancy from uh, Australia, reached out to me, didn't want to charge me any money, helped me with a bunch of stuff. It, it's had its own life. 
And so I'm sure that the distributors are going to want to rein that in and mm -hmm. do set promotions and stuff. So I'm hoping that they don't start telling me, oh, you know, we want a unicorn to fly across the screen in the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, who is who? With Bobby on it. Who does handle like the post production to make it just so then? Does that come back to you after Sony gives it to the platform? I We have a post mixer, uh, TJ Callaway, that we're using. And Robert Kaufman is my editor. I, I need to thank those two guys, beautiful guys. Thank you, fellas. Uh, and then I, I'm kind of directing at the helm here and what scenes go where and dialogue. Uh, we even have some surprise Bobby dialogue happening here that was found. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, he kind of tells his story through a cassette that I cleaned oh. up. So, well, oh. a lot of great stuff on there, man. I know you can't promise anything, but is it realistic to maybe expect a release of some sort in 2024? Yes. Awesome. That was your shortest answer of the whole interview. <laughs> that's I do have that's the one not to trust. Then I think yes. Anyway, yeah. I I mean, for me, it just you know there was like. I talked to you guys last time I do other interviews, and it's like yeah. all of a sudden something else rears. It's Len Kovner, who owned Davlin Studio. Man, what an epic interview that was, and what a sweetheart of a guy. And ground zero for huge records. And that was Bobby cut a demo there, and that became a famous thing. Every label wanted to sign Walter Yatnikoff, Mo Austin. Nobody heard about this. And all of a sudden it comes to my, in my realm, and I talk to Len, and it's like, wow, are you serious? Right before Toto, every label wanted him, and guys wanted to produce him. And Len had this special thing with him where Bobby sat at that Bosendofer and cut these demos, but they were great. They were unbelievable. His vocals, and he's yeah. singing like a bird. I do wonder what if, man. What if he had been a solo artist? That would, uh, I mean, that's, we would never know, but that would, that's an interesting right. so one Jeff to ponder. And, Jeff, and, Jeff and David get back from that Boss Gags tour, and, you know, I think Jeff, I can't remember now, but I think Jeff comes into Len's studio and he's like, where's the tape? And he listens to it and he runs over to David because David thought that he was still with SS Fools. That deal collapsed. It was 16 or 18 months and CBS dropped him because those guys, Floyd Sneed and Joe Shermie and all those guys really wanted to be back in Three Dog Night. Mm. So when David realizes Bobby and hears about this demo, he makes the call and Bobby decides I'm going with these guys because they're you know, they had been was, hanging yeah. out at the SS Fools rehearsals and they already knew Bobby's voice. They, I don't think Jeff was really a fan of Bobby's voice at first. He wanted Will Lee, like I told you guys before, but David was. David said it reminded him of a Southern church with like all this mm. mystic soul mm -hmm. involved. Yeah, that, so can hear that. he was all over it. So with last time, so Lukather. I get done with that. I get down to the bottom of the hill on Ventura Boulevard. Phone rings. It's Steve Karras. He goes, how did it go? And I said, beautiful, man. <laughs> beautiful. And then he said, what else do you need? I said, well, I'm leaving Monday. It's now Friday, I think. Yeah, it's Friday. Because I went then to Mel's and met somebody. for. And he, I said, I need David. And he goes, wow. He goes, okay. Calls me back. 1230 tomorrow. Here's the address. David Page, uh, for those wondering. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. Yeah. And you understand, there's there's no denying it. you got to understand that that's the meat and potatoes of his catalog, really, those first four records. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. 
Well, so he was he he was all too happy to talk about it, and he's a genius. And what he did is out of this world, and the way he treated me, and the way all of them, Steve Picaro, Lee Sklar, you know, uh, Lenny, Steve Picaro, and Lenny, I've kind of developed a special friendship with. Man, they've played on this stuff for the soundtrack. Uh, you know, Steve and I are working out a thing with the Secret Love where we're going to do some interludes and things. Uh, we'll wrap that up in the end. But they've been, all those guys, anything, Steve Lukather sent me a message. Man, anything you need, this is unbelievable. It's going to be great. You know, it was wow. touched by the trailer and he got emotional about it. And rightfully so. They These guys yeah, built the castle. I. They built the castle, man. Yeah. How many bands you see like that? That there's all the members are involved in multi platinum records yeah. outside of their band, outside of the band, right? Right. Yeah, it's that. It's not. You know, you got your Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelins, and you know, right. I can't the, think of another good example. Right, and wow. if that's a mark against them, it's a mark I'd love to have. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, people think that's a mark against them, or they did back then. I'm not so sure anymore. People have learned. Well, yeah, yeah. we've been sort of just cataloging that as we've gone in our four-year journey here on this podcast. I mean, we knew, you know, to an extent, the catalog, but we did not know just how deep. I mean, you've discovered artists that you don't think ever saw light of day. And they've got right. this cast of characters on the record. They are the centerpiece of West Coast music, period. Yep. Look, I, I'm going to tell you something right now. I was a fan, obviously, and, and one of my, as I, you, maybe if you heard that interview that Bobby gave, one of my wishes for Bobby, and I told him in, in, in San Francisco was, I hope you make it back to Toto, because that's where you belong. Mm. You mm. were meant to be in that band with that chemistry. You know, I know that Jeff was gone then, but he was meant to be that sword, you know, that vocal, that communication. Yeah, so, the sword. Yeah. Uh, the thing is, is that you can't deny what these guys all did. And by listening to all these tapes and me archiving everything, guys, it's like my Beatles now. Oh, yeah. I know. Hearing Gosh. that that first demos, and believe me, on that first demo, the piano drum demo with David... And Jeff is where it started. That first one, you hear songs from the first record and from the fourth record, from the third record and the second record, on those first ones. It wasn't like, some of that stuff was already developing and it was already there, you know. But to he hear all the rehearsals, the first rehearsal of Hold the Line, Bobby's making up words. <laughs> you know, That's so cool. Where, where can people see, uh, there's trailers out. You, you referenced a new trailer. Is that out? Where can we send people to get a taste of what's to come? Right, right. You can go to uh, the Two Souls Production YouTube page, or you could just type on YouTube, Bobby Kimball, uh, Kite on a String, the, or Kite on a String, the extended trailer. And Kite on a String has its own page on Facebook too, right? Right, it sure does. Yeah. Yeah, so and follow that. I need some help with uh, uh, outside people because it becomes too much. I, I want to respond to everybody, but I can't. Sometimes and they get upset. <laughs> well, <laughs> you got the we, same problem. Not it. We yeah, get a taste of it. Honestly, going back to what I said at the beginning, like I get a, obviously an update every time someone comments on our YouTube channel, and it's all, almost always on your video. It's almost always when is this coming out? Or I played with Bobby in junior high school in this band, and I'd love to be a part of this. And so, hopefully, you're monitoring those comments because I don't have the time right. to get back to all these people either. <laughs> right. Well, the, you know. I have to say, and, and I'm always honest about it, 
you know, even after we finished, we're not in Kansas anymore, there were problems. He was already starting. And some of those performances are just not good. And I'm, I'm, I, you know, it's like some of these people don't want to remember Bobby in his current state and stuff. He's all love right now. But I chose to be, you know, the gold of Bobby. You know, there is some problem areas in here that have to do with that Africa video uh, and the way that people treated him and online hatred that you're going to see and that really nobody deserves that. Yes, they're public profile people, public, you know, but it's like uh, there comes a time to be have kindness take over. So I, I, I'm not, you know, if you went through, because Bobby, that last five years of him performing was pretty much a short money hustle. It was like collect, 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 and there was no quality control. We begged him to have, but you just couldn't. And and it, and it's kind of like Bruce Willis doing those last films where he had in ear monitors. Oh, I tried to watch those, and you you could see that he just wasn't right. That was so hard. I had to turn it off. I couldn't do it. But they probably knew if I had to venture to guess with the struggles I've been through in life, you know, in your head that wow, things are bad here. And they were probably, like Bobby, probably wanting to fill the till to take care yeah. of their life yeah. and their family, you know? Well, that's why we can't wait to see the entire life story, I mean, pretty much played out on screen. We're going to let you go so you can actually get back to editing so you can push this thing over the finish line, John. Right. <laughs> all right? right. So, I will. I will. We're, we're, we're hard at it right now. All right. We're hard at it right now. And uh, well, Good luck with your distribution deals, too, because I know you're going to be in negotiations for that. But uh, we know it'll find the right home, and we know that you're doing the right thing, and we can't wait to see it. Thank you, fellas. All right. Well, hopefully the next update is you coming on to talk about the – Grand release, or maybe you guys showing, or maybe you guys showing up at a premiere. I would love to have a premiere in hometown Detroit. Uh, You know, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Bring Luke up here, theater in Ann Arbor, maybe. Yeah, Fox Theater. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, man. All right, well, good luck with it. Keep us posted and Godspeed on it. All right, thank you so much. See ya. Well, there you go, everyone. There's your update as it stands as of this day in the year of this year. We don't know when you're <laughs> listening, but that's that's the latest from Zeka. Yeah. All right. Well, um, I guess uh, Storm's been a brewing. Let's hit it. All right. So I guess I'm going first on Found at Sea. The reason I get to go first is because he mentioned during the recording, John said that uh, the uh, Toto has become his Beatles. Hmm. Which is nice. And it happens to coincide with, uh, as you know, recently there was the uh, final Beatles release that got released. They finally finished the song that they had started twice, actually. Obviously, the first John Lennon demo, and then they were kind of flirting around with it back when they did the anthology albums, but never were able to get this one how they liked it. So it sat in the can, and it's now been resurrected with greater ability to extract John's vocal from the original piano demo, which apparently was part of the hang-up. I wonder if the piano just wasn't well-tuned or something, Um, Hmm. because they had piano mixed in on one of the others. It didn't seem to bother them. But anyway, so Now and Then came out, and that just got me wondering uh, what would, as we played the game before, what would be the Beatles' number one spun song 
on Spotify. So you have to take everything into consideration. A, that who's the audience for Spotify? Obviously, Spotify didn't come out until a certain year well past the uh, Beatles' initial surge. So at this point in time, uh, I went there and I was completely surprised because my first two weren't it. And I thought they were dead ringers. So what do you think? All right. My first two are Hey Jude and Yesterday. Same. Exactly the same choices for me. Uh, number one is Here Comes the Sun. Ah. And it isn't even close. 1.1 billion spins, and the next highest one is 687 million. So almost twice Wow. the next one. Why would Here Comes the Sun? Because then it's come together, both off of Abbey Road, then yesterday, let it be, twist and shout, and kind of... But why would Here Comes the Sun be so much higher than any other? That is it in a lot of playlists because of the theme or something? I don't know. That's got to be it. Huh. Well, yeah. what's shocking to me is actually 1 billion spins seems actually kind of low for the Beatles. But maybe their audience isn't on Spotify to the extent. Yeah, I mean, that's what... That's what I was going to say. So maybe there's a younger, like you say, maybe there's some reason why Here Comes the Sun is on the profile or on the consciousness of younger people that would be more spinning on Spotify. I don't know. Well, if there's any young people out there, let us know. Or, yeah, I don't think there's any listen to this show. Well, there might be, but uh, that was my found at sea. All right. My found at sea comes courtesy of the viewer mailbag. <laughs> Mail's in. All right, so this is uh, Listener J, the letter J. I've asked for uh, further identification, have not received it, but he is a... Just uh, J. Yeah, or could be a she. This listener um, goes back to the episode we did on grooves. So Listener J says, prompted by your Buried Treasures talk about songs in 12-8 time. I couldn't recall the title or the artist of this band that he got the chorus of in his mind. He said that it came to him. He didn't say exactly how, but he said, here's your clues. It's from 1981. It sounds a lot like your pick. Toto's make believe minus the sax, but with the keyboards similar hammering out those triplets. It may be a bit of Gino Vanelli's declamatory vocalizing. Um, So I thought for about 10 minutes, I did not come up with it. I could not have come up with it. I would not have come up with it. He was referring to, do you know this song? John O'Banion's Love You Like I Never Loved Before. I love you like I never loved before. And every day I love you so much more. Feeling like I I've never heard the song. I've never heard of the artist, but I will say the minute I dropped the uh, Spotify needle on that, I heard like hold the line sort of <laughs> piano. He references uh, make believe and that's another good reference, but totally. And at first I thought, oh, this is just another one of those artists that was doing this thing at the time. And then you listen to it more and you can say, yeah, I can see why this never got popular because I expected it to kind of go wah, wah. But it was pretty darn cool. It, it is. surprised me the vocal and, and the key changes and wow. Yes, in all contraire, uh, Mona B, it hit uh, number twenty one on the U.S. Billboard Hot one hundred. So I'm sorry, yeah. number twenty four, number twenty four. But still, I must have checked out that year because I have no recollection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, 
Well, it could have been a buried treasure too, but since True. we're moving in that direction, yep. here is my buried treasure. So we've got to go back to my oft uh, repeated tripe or trope, I should say. <laughs> it is tripe. <laughs> yeah. um, and that is the complaints about the uh, Sirius XM Yacht Rock playlist on their oh, station. That's, that's a fun gag, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It hasn't gotten well, old. It, it, here's a perfect example. So, You've heard them play, I'm sure, a million times, Champagne's How About Us. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I'm not even sure how yachty that is. It, it seems to fit with what they're doing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like over and over and over again, and it's more R&B than it is yacht. It is. So, but then I came across this tune, which I had totally forgotten that I had forgotten about. It's also by Champagne. And it's from 1983, and it's considerably more yachty. Do you remember the buried treasure? Try again. You told me you needed more walks, more talks, more feeling close to me. I wanna be close to you. Didn't know you needed some roses, some romance, a little candlelight, and slow things. I did not remember it by title, but as soon as I, uh, again, dropped the Spotify needle on it, I was like, oh my gosh. And I was singing it. All day in my head. That is, I like that song better than How About Us. That is for sure. I remember that song very well now. It's one of those, you know, you can kind of picture where you were, kind of. Yes. And I think it's closer to the actual boat, really, than How About Us. It's got some of those Paul Mute guitars doing some rhythm. And yeah. Actually, if you go and listen to Champagne's catalog, it's pretty darn good. At least those first two albums. And some of it kind of flirts with Yacht. It's, ooh. So there's your listening. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess you know, it is. I guess it would be. Well, there's your listening assignment, listeners. Okay, right. uh, what have you for a buried treasure? Or well, treasure? I'm going to answer you with, uh, when you kind of mentioned that uh, you were looking at that tune, uh, just coincidentally, uh, Ross, the lead, one of the lead singers of Page 99, happened to that very day send me a song that he's like, I want to do this. I could sing the heck out of this. <laughs> and it was exactly... Similar to Champagne, it was a song that as soon as I heard it, I recalled it. It certainly lives in that quiet storm, yacht, soul area. Uh, so, you know, maybe middle of the road, middle of the road soul. But this one wasn't as popular. It went to only number 60 on Billboard, number 19 on the soul singles. But Ronnie Laws, sax player, brother of Hubert Laws, the flute player. And this is from 1981, and it's Stay Awake. Still wicked, I want you by my side, baby. Still wicked, I want you by my side, baby. Still wicked, I want you by my side, baby. Very similar vibe, yes. Um, yeah. Although I, I don't remember that one. Did you remember it from back in the day? I remember the chorus, certainly, okay. very clearly, but for some reason in my head, it sounded a little different. So I searched for other people that did that song, was not able to come up with anything. So mm. that must be the one. Well, it's good. Thank you, uh, listener Ross, was it? Yeah. 
Russ. Ross, yes. Russ. He wants our show to go live because he said when we're having these uh, discussions, he wants to be able to call in. So, Oh, he's, <laughs> how very AM radio of him. Yes. Yeah, so maybe we should do a live episode someday. Call uh, Russ. You're on the air. Uh, yes. So that puts off the map into my lap, right? It does. That rhymes. All right. I, I'm going way, way off the map. This is just one of those cases where I heard a song and again, it was similar to that where I was like, oh man, this is, was buried. It probably wasn't all that popular, but it was known enough that it made a greatest hits compilation. And it's just one of those gems that disappeared from radio and you hear it like, oh man, I love this song. And it's called Dear God by Midjur as from Ultravox. So let's hit that. Give me That is banger there. Um, was it released as Ultravox at the time? I, I think Midge as a soloist. I mean, that's okay. a hard name to say, especially when you got a microphone in front of your mouth, you know. <laughs> but uh, it said uh, as a solo artist, you only hit the singles chart one time in America with that single, Dear God. And it only reached number 95 on the Billboard Hot 100. But number six on the mainstream rock chart, number four on the alternative music chart. So it kind of just got me thinking about, we're starting to see, this is 1988 when he did it, we're starting to see that the rock charts are starting to recognize the importance of what we would maybe call alternative rock at the time, before the 90s comes in and really brings it to the fore. Yes, yes. And for people who might recognize the name but aren't connecting the dots, that is the same. What was Midyuri's involvement with um, Do They Know It's Christmas? Because that's where, who gets the credit uh, nowadays. Yeah, one of the writers, one of the singers. I mean, he's got one of the great voices of the 80s, man. And Ultravox, there is a deep catalog that you need to explore, man. Yes. All right, well, I put that song on my 80s Nouveau playlist. Very nice. Nyat. All right, uh, which brings me to Off the Map. I warned you and listeners previously that i was coming back to cool in the gang so <laughs> this is not yacht but you should go in everything that you like about yacht rock is in the cool in the gang catalog absolutely this, yep yes uh, this is from the 1983 album in the heart you will yeah. remember this song as tonight that's the first tune where they started with the the power chord guitars which they then used more on uh the next album like misled which was the song you brought before but yeah 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 that's smooth and nasty at the same time when you get those it power is. chords in there Ooh, doggy yeah. all right well i guess we will uh direct listeners back to youtube if you want to get the update uh we might have some bonus footage uh at the youtube version of our interview with john zaka today that is coming soon until then my friends ahoy Poloi. <laughs> <laughs> 